Matthew 18, about the middle of the chapter. Today is the Agony of Victory, part 12. That is the 12th part of our series on prayer. And you remember that the last time we spoke on prayer, we talked about praying to the Father. Today we're going to be talking about praying with others. Uh, the biblical mandate for that, what is involved in that, the blessings that flow from that. So praying with others today. Let's pray before we get into it. Lord, thank you for this thing that you're doing in us, that you're calling us to prayer. And Father, we just seek to remind ourselves right now that it's an incredible honor that you've invited us into your work, that you've beckoned us unto your heart, that the doors to the throne of grace have been thrown wide open for us. And you said, come, tell me what you have need of. Come and commune with my Father's heart. Thank you for it, Lord. Thank you for it, God. I just pray that not one person in this congregation would miss the glory of you teaching us how to pray. I ask that we would press behind us all the things of the world and all the things of self, and we would press into the things of you now. That your word would have its perfect work this morning. Thank you that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, I feel inadequate and unable to teach such incredible things this morning. So I'm asking for the Holy Spirit. Jesus, you said that the Holy Spirit was the teacher of all things. Holy Spirit, come and instruct us. Holy Spirit, we would invite you to challenge us. To wake us up, to shake us up, to move us into a place of communion with you and intercession before you. Do a wonderful work in us that would be for your glory, for your praise, for your honor, and for your kingdom. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So talking about praying with others, and at the end of the service today, I'll give you a chance to do that. We're all going to turn to the people around us and have a little time of praying with other people. We're immediately going to be doers of the word. We're going to put what we've learned right into action. But I want to remind us at the outset that the most important aspect of prayer is communion. Uh, The most important aspect of prayer is communion. Possibly the best definition that we've stumbled across in the last 12 weeks is that prayer is a dialogue between two people that love each other. Us and the Lord. And so at its core, most importantly, primarily, It is an act of communion, just drawing near to the heart of God, being with Him. After all, He died on the cross that we might be with Him, not that we might just do things for Him. And we talked about that um, the last time we spoke on prayer from Matthew 6, 6 and 8, where Jesus says, But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, and when you've shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So there is that concept of going into the prayer closet, going into the private place, not necessarily looking to receive, but going with the assurance that He knows what we need. And so we don't have to worry about it per se. Just drawing near to His heart with no other agenda other than to love Him and receive His love. That's the most important aspect of prayer. If you've caught anything over the last last 12 weeks, I hope that's it. But the second most important aspect of prayer is intercession. Intercession, that is the act or the action of intervening on behalf of another. And we've learned about in previous lessons how important this is. You'll remember from Exodus 32, when Moses was up on Mount Sinai, and and, uh, Israel made for themselves that golden calf, and they begin to worship that golden calf. 
And God said to Mo, Mo, you better get down the mountain because these people are your people. I'm going to wipe them out. God was bummed out. God had every reason to be. And he was going to bring justice upon them. In his righteousness, he was going to judge them. And he literally says in Exodus 32, Moses, move aside. I'm going to kill them. And you'll remember that Mo just prays. Moses simply prays, he intercedes, he intervenes, and he just says, Lord, have mercy on your people. And we're told there in Exodus 32 that the Lord changed his mind. Not meaning that, like, when you and I change our mind, that he was wrong in what he was going to. That's what we mean, oh, I changed my mind, I was wrong. That's what we mean. That's not what it means when it says in Exodus 32, the Lord changed his mind. It means to relent from an undesirable course. He was absolutely right and justified in bringing judgment upon them. But when somebody interceded at the throne of grace, when somebody just asked for mercy, he is just as right and justified to extend mercy to his people. And so because somebody asked, his judgment was averted and his mercy was extended. But we remember that truth in the book of James, that you have not because you ask not. And conversely uh, to that, in Ezekiel 22, there was another time where Israel had themselves in a bunch of trouble. And the Lord was going to bring judgment upon them once again, and he was justified to do so. But we're told in Exod, uh, excuse me, Ezekiel 22, roundabout verse 30, that the Lord looked for a man who would stand in the gap and plead the case. The Lord looked for an intercessor. Because the Lord in his righteousness had to judge them, but he wanted to in his mercy extend mercy to them. And so he looked for a man who would just pray and say, God, have mercy. But there was no one in Israel to be found. There was no intercessor. And so the Lord brought his judgment upon the people. That should bring upon you and I an incredible sense of the value, the power, and the responsibility of intercessory prayer. That when one man prayed, judgment was averted. And when no man would pray, judgment came. Now, we are a nation that needs mercy. We are a people in a church that needs mercy. And so we're people that need to pray and intercede. And the posture that we are told to take before the Lord when we intercede by Jesus is that of asking and seeking and knocking. You remember he said in Luke 11 verses 9 through 10. And I say to you, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it shall be opened. So there is this posture of consistency in intercessory prayer, of persisting with insistence. That's the definition of importunity. We studied that. We're to be importune in prayer. And there is relayed here in the words of Jesus an increase in fervency. You start by asking, and then you move to seeking, and then you end up knocking. And that is to be the posture of us as we intercede for others before the throne of grace. And the promise is given that to those who ask, they will receive. And to he who seeks, he will find. And to him who knocks, it shall be opened. Now that promise is made in Scripture, and we believe it. Amen? But, but that promise is given in the singular context. It says, I, Jesus said, I say to you. And then he said, to he who asks, to he who seeks, to him who knocks. He's talking about individual intercession. But now follow with me. Do you suppose that those promises of receiving, finding, and opening, 
as they're given in the singular there, do you suppose, though, that there can be when we join together in prayer, when there's an increase in number of people agreeing in intercession, that there should be even a greater expectancy of receiving, of finding, of the door being opened? Can we expect that there would be a multiplication of the promise if more people would pray? Well, listen, you, you guys know from life that there is strength in numbers in unity. There's strength in numbers in unity. That's true all throughout life. Ecclesiastes speaks of it. Chapter 4, verses 9 through 12 says, Two are better than one because they have good return for their labor. They can accomplish more. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? In verse 12, And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. So the Bible teaches that in life in general, there's strength in numbers and in unity. We see it again in the book of Leviticus, chapter 26, verses 7 through 8, where it says, God says to his people, But you will chase your enemies, and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. And again in Deuteronomy 32.30, the, the Lord says that he would enable his people in such a way that one would chase a thousand, but two could put ten thousand to flight. Now that's not addition, that's multiplication. I, I don't know if you know any math. But, but if one puts a thousand, and ten puts ten, or yeah, two puts ten thousand to flight, that's multiplication. And there's strength in numbers, there is strength in unity, and in the kingdom of God, it's not addition, it's multiplication. And now Jesus in our text applies this to intercessory prayer. I want you to look now in the text in Matthew 18, verses 19 and 20. The words of Jesus. He says in Matthew 18, 19, Again I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. Now the Lord here is teaching us about agreeing in prayer. And he makes an incredible promise. If two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask. Now, of course, anything, um, it's got some, uh, it's, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's uh, not attenuated. There's some conditions. That'll work. There's some conditions on that. Like if you ask the Lord to do something against his will, well, come on. You don't know better than the Lord. You're not going to twist his arm. You're not going to make him do something he doesn't want to do. If we ask anything according to his will, 1 John 5 says, this is a confidence we have before him, that we have that thing for which we've asked. And we've already talked about the faith that there are hindrances to effective prayer. We've got to have faith to approach the Lord in prayer. We've got to check our motives. You know, we can ask amiss according to the book of James. And then we've got to be walking generally. The tone and the tenor of our life should be obedience before the Lord. So there are some conditions for effective prayer. We know that. But the general promise is, That if two agree in prayer about anything, they have that thing for which they have asked. And then that secondary promise in verse 20, for where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. Now the Lord is always with us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. We are in him. 
We have been baptized into Christ, and He is in us, His presence in us. And so the Lord is always with us, but this is in a very special sense. The Lord here is teaching that when two or three get together to pray, the Lord is there in a unique way. His authorizing presence, His empowering presence, His comforting presence, in a way that He's not at other times. The Lord is there in a special way when people get together to agree in prayer. The larger context for this passage is that of church discipline. You should know that. If you turn back a little bit and you go to verse 15 and begin to read there, it says, And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. There there we have the outline for church discipline. If somebody sins, we're to go to him. We know that we're to go to him in a spirit of love. We're to go to him in gentleness, looking first to ourselves, Galatians chapter 6 says. And Jesus said, remove first the log from your own eye before you address the speck in somebody else's eye. And it's not if they just sin one time and they just fall short and miss the mark. But if there's a habitual, willful sin in somebody's life, we're to go to them in love and reprove them, rebuke them. And if they turn, praise the Lord. We've won our brother. If they don't turn, we're to go to get one or two other people. That the fact may be confirmed by the mouth of two or three witnesses of the book of Deuteronomy says and say, hey man, we love you. And what you're doing is dangerous and it's wrong and it's offense before God. And we're calling you to repent today. For the sake of Christ and for your sake and for the sake of the body of Christ that you're connected to, repent. If they do so, awesome. Praise the Lord. Hug them and kiss them and have fun. If they don't, you're to bring them before the church. Ecclesia, the the gathering. It doesn't mean that you bring them up on the stage before the whole body and you tell everybody. But it would be a representative body, perhaps the leadership of the church or a group within the church entrusted with such things. And they would again confront them. And if he refuses to repent the third time, then he's to be put out of the church. We see it in in action, excuse me, in the book of 1 Corinthians, where Paul says to put a man out of the church who was involved in sexual immorality. Later on in 2 Corinthians, he asks that he be brought back in, lest he be overwhelmed. And, And so there is church discipline that is to be exercised within the church. And when the church exercises it, it's healthy. If it refuses to do so, a church becomes unhealthy. And one of the most destructive things is when a church is afraid to exercise biblical church discipline. And what never happens then is healing. Healing doesn't happen. Because these are the parameters for healing and repentance that God has given inside his church. And if man in his wisdom or man in his fear or man in his arrogance goes outside of those and tries to do it his own way, then he cannot expect the fullness of healing and repentance and restoration according to the Spirit of God. God's Spirit works according to God's Word. And then in verse 18, it says, Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, binding and loosing. These were first century rabbinical terms for forbidding and permitting. To bind meant to forbid, and to loose meant to permit. And so in those days, someone would go to a rabbi or a scribe and would say, I've I've got a question. This is going on in my life or my family or or my synagogue, whatever. And, you know, what does the word say about this? And is this right for us to do? And the rabbi might say, yes, that is loosed. Or I loose that. In other words, yes, that is permitted. Or the rabbi might say, that is bound. Or that is forbidden. 
And, and the promise here that Jesus gives to the church, really to the, to the representative body of the church leadership here, those who are exercising church discipline is, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And, and it's a perfect passive participle. That means it's this. This. Here's what it means. Whatever you permit on earth as the representative ruling body of the church has already been permitted in heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth in the church has already been forbidden in heaven. In other words, the head of the church, Jesus Christ, is going to make sure that the leadership of the church is walking in his will and in his wisdom. If not, he's going to slap them. I've experienced it. And this, this concept of binding and loosing is true in the physical realm and in the spiritual realm. Remember that as a church, as his children, we've been given authority. We're told over and over again that he has entrusted us with authority. And that authority doesn't just play itself out in apparent human relationships within the church. That authority plays it out in the spiritual realm. Isn't it good to know that we have authority in the spiritual realm to say no to that? I'm not going to let the enemy come in and rip off my family. No, I'm not going to let the enemy come in and rip off my friends, rip off my church. And to say yes and amen to the work of the Lord in our midst. Now, that is a narrow context for the next words that Jesus gives us, where he says, Again, I say to you, that if two agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. And where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. The context, again, is church authority. But the broader concept is that of prayer in general. And when he says, where two agree on earth, that word agree is where we get our word symphony in the Greek. And you know what a symphony is. It's a bunch of individual instruments with different tonalities, different characteristics, different qualities, different construction that come together and they sound together. And together they make a beautiful sound. But we've all heard an orchestra warming up and and what a hideous sound that is, you know what I mean? They're all playing different things and it sounds like a bunch of cats getting slaughtered or something. And and you just go, ah, this this is not right. But then... When the conductor begins to conduct and they fall in line behind him and they begin to play with one mind and one accord, it's beautiful. It's a symphony. Now, it is to be in the church that the conductor, the Holy Spirit, would conduct us in prayer in such a way that we would fall in line behind him and pray with one mind and one accord, and it would be beautiful in the spiritual realm. Just as an orchestra playing together is powerful and moving, so is prayer when it's agreed upon. When it's with one mind and one accord, it's powerful and it's moving in the spiritual realm. When we're in symphony, when we agree upon those things. And it seems that to a large degree, that is God's general will for prayer in the church that we would be agreeing in prayer, praying with one another, praying with each other. It seems that that's always been the way that the Lord intended it for his church. Because you remember that the disciples came and said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And when he taught them to pray, he said, pray in this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our bread. And forgive us our 
trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's in the plural. When the disciples said, teach us how to pray, he taught them to pray in the plural. He didn't say, say my father, say my bread, say my sins. He wanted to impart to them the context of corporate prayer. He wanted to impart at the very outset of teaching them that their prayer life as disciples of Jesus Christ was to be intertwined with the rest of the body. They were to be connected in prayer with one another. Now, of course, that is not to the exclusion of private prayer. We already talked about that, drawing near to the Father heart of God and communing with Him. It's not to the exclusion of private prayer, but to have a healthy prayer life, you've got to have both happening. You've got to have private prayer going on and public prayer going on. You've got to have individual prayer and corporate prayer to grow, to blossom, to really tap into the fullness of the blessings of the Lord. They should both be happening in your life, one not to the exclusion of others, going into your prayer closet and coming together with the rest of the body. Andrew Murray, in a wonderful book called With Christ in the School of Prayer, describes it this way. He says, As a tree has its roots hidden in the ground and its stem growing up into the sunlight, so prayer needs equally for its full development the hidden secrecy in which the soul meets God alone and the public fellowship with those who find in the name of Jesus their common meeting place. And so there ought to be in your life, in my life, times that you could point to and say, yes, I I get alone with the Lord at that time, at these times. And I come together with the body or with others at these times. You really got to have those both functioning. You ought to be able to immediately identify them. If not, just make some changes today. Be a doer of the word. Say, cool, yeah, I've been in my prayer closet. I've been praying alone, but golly, I haven't been praying with people. Start with one or two people. Grab the person closest to you, your wife, your husband, your kids, whoever it is. Whatever it is, come to the prayer meetings. Here at the church, we have prayer meetings all throughout the week. We've got prayer meetings up in Goleta. We've got them down here in Carp. we got them at 6 a.m., 6 p.m. got them whenever you need them. But both should be happening in our lives. We see that that was the practice of the early church, that it was normative in the early church that they agreed in prayer, that they participated in corporate prayer, that they prayed with one another. In the book of Acts, We see in chapter 1, verse 14, it says, These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And then in verse 24, later in the chapter, it says, And they prayed. We see at the very beginning of the book of Acts, which teaches to us so much about the church, that twice in the first chapter, it says that they were engaged in corporate prayer. Christian, it's got to be happening in your life. We see later on in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 21 through 31, it says, And when they heard this, they lifted their voices, in the plural, to God with one accord, and said, and said, and then they prayed a prayer, and then at the end it says, And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. So we see again a few chapters later, they're all praying together with one mind, many voices, one mind, and there were great results. Again, in Acts chapter 8, Peter got arrested, and he's in prison. And we, and we read a, 
or I'm sorry, that's not yet. That's, Peter, that's Acts 12. In Acts 8, I'm sorry, uh, some people got converted in Samaria. And they had not yet received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so the apostles sent there Peter and John. And Peter and John together laid hands on and prayed for them to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Peter didn't go alone. John didn't go alone. They went in concert, accompanying one another, praying for the gifts. And guess what? They got the baptism of the Holy Spirit that day. Now in Acts chapter 12, old Pete did go to prison. And we read in verses 5 and 12, So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. And he went to the house of Mary, this is when he got out, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. It's normative. It's expected. It's just the way it ought to be that the church prays together. And in Acts 13, it says, And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Listen, church. It's really important that we see these things modeled in the book of Acts and and we seek to follow after them. Not everything in Acts is good. You know, there was a lot of messes in the church. You know what I mean? That's church, man. It's going to get messy because you're involved. I'm involved. There's going to be some messes. And sometimes it gets complicated and crazy. But you know what? A church that prays together stays together. I know that's clichéic and it sounds silly, but it is true and profound and wonderful. A church that prays together stays together. The early church, it was their habit to pray with one mind and one accord, and so it ought to be for us. And I want to tell you some of the benefits of praying together. The first one in praying together is that the spirit of prayer is deepened. Charles Finney said it this way, Nothing is more calculated to beget a spirit of prayer than to unite in social prayer with one who has the spirit himself. That is to say there's something catching about prayer. There's something contagious about it. And man, if you don't have a fire for prayer, the best thing that you could do is go to a prayer group. Find some people or a person that is fiery for prayer and sit and pray with them. I am telling you, it's ordained by God that there is something contagious about it. And so the spirit of prayer is deepened when we pray together. When we hear the prayers of the saints, when we see and feel the spirit moving, there's just something that happens. You just start to catch that fire. It's designed by God. You know, our prayer life is is like a bed of coals. It's like a bed of coals in a barbecue maybe. And as long as those coals stay together, they stay hot, don't they? For a long time. I mean, barbecue goes forever. But it's amazing that if you take one coal out and you set it aside, it extinguishes pretty quickly. I mean, it will have long gone out and those other coals are still on fire. And so you, if you separate yourself from the rest of the body in prayer, it's just so much easier for your prayer life to grow cold than if you were connected, which is God's design for you. And anytime we get outside of God's design, well, it just doesn't work out the way that he designed it to. You understand? The second benefit, and this is wonderful, is that the love of the brethren and unity are intensified. Again, a quote from Charles Finney says, Nothing tends more to cement the hearts of Christians than praying together. 
Never do they love one another so well as when they witness the outpouring of each other's hearts in prayer. Can anybody testify to that? That is so wonderfully true. I want to read it again. Nothing tends to cement the hearts of Christians than praying together. Never do they love one another so well as when they witness the outpouring of each other's hearts in prayer. Yes and amen to that. That is absolutely true. And again, it's God's design that we be connected to the body in prayer. And Jesus said that in the last days, the love of many would wax cold. Well, guess what? We're living in the last days. We need to see to it that our loves for one another stays fervent, that we stay connected in spirit, that we have that perfect bond of peace, which is the love of Christ. And so praying together. Now, Wesley Dewell in his book, Mighty Prevailing Prayer, says this, apart from personal sin, Nothing is more certain to hinder prevailing prayer than disunity. Disunity in the home hinders the prayer of the members of the home, and disunity in a church hinders the prayers of the church. You see, it's kind of a a gracious circle, kind of the opposite of a vicious circle. It's like this. When you're unified, you want to pray together. When you pray together, you get unified. The more unified you become, the more you want to pray together. The more you pray together, the more unified you become. It's God's design. Now, the opposite is true. When there's disunity and backbiting and slandering and gossip and all this silliness, you don't want to pray together. And if you neglect praying together, then there comes a greater degree of disunity. And the more disunity comes in, the less you want to pray together. And the less you pray together, the more disunity comes in. And the more disunity that comes in, the less you want to pray together. And the less you pray together, you get the picture. There comes a moment in the life of every Christian where you've got to take responsibility for your role within the body of Christ, where you can't leave it to others any longer, where you've got to say, I am going to be connected in this thing of corporate prayer because God tells me to. Now, remember, any time God calls us to obedience, he wants to pour out blessings. God is a giver and not a taker, and I know that corporate prayer takes time and it takes energy and it's a labor, but you cannot out-bless God, people. You cannot out-give God. You give to the Lord in prayer. You stand in the gap for God's people and you will experience blessings unspeakable. Uh, Another quote from him. It says, God will not be mocked. We cannot prevail in prayer while disunity festers. As much as is in our power, we must seek to humble ourselves, take the blame, and restore unity. Listen, I, I would say in all humility... That, that we here at Reality Carpenteria, by the grace of God, we're generally united. There, there's not a lot of dissension in the ranks. If there is, I hear about it. People tell me when they're upset. There's not a lot of dissension in the ranks. God has done a wonderful thing in that, generally speaking, our hearts are knit together. We're of one mind and we're of one cord, but people, we can't just presume upon that. We need to engage in that. We need to engage in the outflow of that, which is corporate prayer. We need to come together and foster and nurture and cultivate that oneness. And if there's problems with somebody, get right with them, man. Humble yourself. Say, I'm wrong. I don't even care if they're wrong. Just say, I'm wrong. Humble yourself. Why not rather be wrong, just says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 about disputes within the church. Get over yourself. Get over it. Be reconciled and let's get on with the business of the kingdom. There's men and women who are going to hell. There's children who are tormented by the enemy. Let's get in the gap like Mo and begin to pray and see them delivered. 
Some exhortations from Scripture about this, Matthew 5, 23 through 24. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You see, that one's hard for us because we go, well, they, and they did, and they won't, and they, uh. The Bible doesn't say so much as it depends upon them or what they do or don't do. So much as it depends upon you. What upon you? As much as you're willing and able to humble yourself and forgive as you have been forgiven. Forgiving somebody doesn't mean that they deserve it. It's the opposite. God didn't forgive us because we deserved it. It's called grace, man. It's undeserved. And so often we get hung up and we say, they don't deserve it. They haven't changed. They haven't said they're sorry. When they do something, I'll do something. Listen, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. They don't deserve it. That's why it's called forgiveness. 1 Peter 3.7 is profound, talking about marriage, but the concept extrapolates to the whole body. It says, you husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You hear what that says? Husband, if you're messing up at home and you're not treating your woman right, you're not dwelling with her in an understanding way, your prayer life is hindered. Why? Because there's disunity in that relationship. Disunity always hinders prayer. Now extrapolate that out to the rest of the body and all your other relationships. The concept is the same. That if we're not seeking to dwell in peace, our prayers are hindered. And listen, the hour is just too late to have hindered prayers. The need of salvation in our community is just too great to have our hairs hindered by silly people stuff. Matthew 6, 14 through 15. Jesus said this immediately after he told them the Lord's Prayer. That's the context, his prayer. For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Deal with it. That's in the context of prayer. The next point, the next benefit of praying together, is that our faith is strengthened. Man, when you pray in a group, you know, sometimes the the enemy loves to get you isolated. And if you're in a tough spot and you really need a lot of prayer and he's got you isolated, sometimes, truthfully, it's hard to have all the faith that we should. And something wonderful happens when we come together. Faith is increased by the will of God. It's increased because we, we visibly see and hear the Holy Spirit directing our prayers. We've talked about that dynamic, that he does that, that he wants to be that director, that he wants to concert us. He wants us to be in concert together. And so, man, when you see and hear the Holy Spirit leading a prayer meeting in a certain direction, it builds your faith because you're like, oh, wow, the God of the living universe is telling us how to pray right now according to his will. These prayers are going to get answered. And faith just overflows. Faith overflows because we hear the faith-filled prayers of others. Faith comes by hearing and that by the word of God. But also our faith is increased when we hear the prayers of others. When someone just prays, you ever been in a prayer meeting and someone just prays a gnarly, crazy prayer and you're like, what? That's gnarly! And for a minute you go, it'll never happen. And then you go, wait a minute! Our God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything they could ever even think to ask. Yeah, Lord, do it! Faith is increased. And, and it comes increased when you say that, when you say, yeah, Lord, do it. 
I love being in a prayer meeting where you hear, yes, yes, amen, Lord, amen. Oh, we believe you for it, Lord. I love that. It increases faith as we profess together our belief in the Lord and that he is able. There is something supernaturally ordained by God that happens in the spirit of a man or a woman. When we agree in prayer, yes, Lord, I agree with that prayer. Amen, Lord, I want to see it done. Faith increases. And Matthew 21, 22 says, anything that you ask believing, you shall receive. And that again is multiplied in the corporate prayer context. In corporate prayer, heart warms heart. Prayer kindles prayer and faith strengthens faith. Charles Spurgeon said that prayer is the breath of faith. That when we get together and pray, we, we breathe faith in to ourselves and into the corporate body. It's the breath of faith. And prayer meetings are, are the lungs of the church. Prayer meetings is where the church gets filled with faith. And listen, as goes the prayer meeting, so goes the church, people. If we stop praying, we we need to stop being a church. I'm telling you. If we stop praying, we need to stop being a church. A prayerless church is an abomination before God. Charles Spurgeon said that the prayer meeting is a graceometer of the church. If God be near them, they must pray. The first sign that God has departed from them is prayerlessness. Our prayer meetings that we have throughout the week, in the a.m. and the p.m., whenever they are, there's several of them. It's where the faith of God is poured into the body. It's where we're made of one mind and one accord. When we get together, the Lord speaks to us. He speaks to our corporate heart. He imparts vision to us. He imparts insight to us, wisdom to us. And then he knits us together in a way that only corporate prayer could do. And I grieve over the part of the body that never engages in those prayer meetings. I do not condemn the part of the body. I grieve over the part of the body. I do not look at you any lesser. But I jealously desire that you would experience that blessing of coming together in prayer, hearing the sovereign God speak to us corporately, pour his wisdom and his vision and his direction into our church and then see the outflow of it and the answers of it. I mean, it's just glorious. It's just right. It's just God's design for the church. It's in those times where we're made of one mind and one accord and so the work of the enemy who loves to divide is cut off in corporate prayer. The next benefit is that spiritual powers multiplied. I already spoke about this. It's multiplied, not added. I mean, when two get together, it's not twice as good. But it, it's exponentially better when two agree together in prayer. It's exponentially more powerful. Again, Deuteronomy 32.30 said that one would chase a thousand, but two could put 10,000 to flight. And if Matthew 21.22 says, all things you ask in prayer, believing you shall receive, how much more? When there's two, three, ten, sixty, a hundred believing the Lord in prayer, can we expect the answer for that thing? Paul the Apostle saw the value, really the necessity of praying with others, of corporate prayer, of prayer partners. Throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, we see him requesting people to pray with him. Romans 15.30, Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. That's the Apostle Paul, man. This is no whiny wimp. 
This is no guy going, my life is so hard. Pray for me. This is not that kind of thing. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul. And he says, I'm urging you by the love of Christ, strive together with me. Let's join together in prayer. Let's agree together in prayer. Paul knew that his ministry was exponentially more powerful if people would agree with him in prayer. Again, in 2 Corinthians 1, 10 through 11, he says, God who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, And he will yet deliver us. You also joining and helping us through your prayers. The thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed upon us through the prayers of many. Paul knew that on his ministry and on the church, favor would be bestowed through the prayers of many. I mean, let's just logically deduce it down. Let's just think for a minute. If the Bible says here that favor comes into the church and to the ministry through the prayers of many, does that mean that there could be a lack of favor or a lack of grace when many don't pray? Absolutely, that's what it means. Absolutely, that's what it means. The church has not because it asks not. Come together in prayer, it's so powerful. And I'm reminded of that quote by Jim Cimbala in his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, where he says, God will manifest himself in direct proportion to your passion for him. And corporate prayer makes the people passionate. I'm telling you, it makes the people passionate. It's a labor. Sometimes it's really hard. You know, and you've got to forego other things like eating and surfing and stuff like that and TV and whatnot. But man, when we come together and pray, the, the Lord ignites our corporate heart with passion. And I really believe that God will manifest himself in our fellowship in direct proportion to our passion for him. More prayer equals more passion. Praise the Lord. Philippians 1.19, same thing. Paul says, For I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul was needing to be delivered from prison. And he said, I know that my deliverance will come when you pray. Now, it'll be the provision and the power and the working of the Holy Spirit. It'll be for His glory and His kingdom, but the conduit will be your prayer. Prayer is a conduit through which so many of the blessings of the Christian life flow. And Paul knew, if you pray for me, I will be delivered. I mean, Peter was delivered from prison when the people prayed. That means if they didn't pray, Peter would have sat in prison. It's unbelievable. Colossians 4, 2 through 3, Paul says, For I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been in prison. He's now in prison in Rome and he wants to have a door for the gospel. He wants to be able to speak the word of God there. And he says to the church in Colossae and Laodicea there in the Lycus Valley in modern day Turkey where our girls are going this week. He says to that church, if you guys will pray, then in response to that, the Spirit of God will open up a door for the gospel. Don't you hope? Don't you hope and don't you believe that the Colossian church got that and said, okay, then we'll pray. I mean, yeah, we want the gospel to go forth in Rome. We'll pray. Well, listen, church, we just got it. It'd be totally nonsensical for us to not pray. 2 Thessalonians 3.1, Finally, brethren, pray for us 
that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you. The very simple fact is that prayer changes things. The Bible is explicit on that. There is no question. Prayer changes things. And agreement in prayer, two or three or more coming together and agreeing in symphony in the name of Jesus Christ with one mind and one accord changes things all the more. That being the truth, I I understand how Charles Spurgeon could could say a thing such as this. I'm going to read you a quote from Charles Spurgeon. It's harsh. It really is. But hearing these biblical truths, I, I can understand and agree with what he says. He says, A prayerless church member is a hindrance. He is in the body like a rotting bone or a decaying tooth. Before long, since he does not contribute to the benefit of the brethren, he will become a danger and a sorrow to them. I I think that reflects the biblical reality of the privilege and the responsibility to pray together. Christian history is full of accounts of the fruit of corporate prayer, one being Pentecost, the birth of the church. At the birth of the church, there were 120 gathered in the upper room. What were they doing? We already read it in Acts 1.14. They were praying with one mind and one accord. And it was in a large prayer meeting where the church was birthed. That is the context into which God said, now I will birth my church by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I will do it in the prayer meeting. That shows you that there is nothing in the church more important to the heart of the Lord than the prayer meeting. He didn't birth the church during the preaching of a sermon. He didn't birth the church during the music ministry. He didn't birth it during the program or the coffee or the donuts. He birthed it during the prayer meeting. And by the way, it was a large gathering. 120 people. I'm very miffed at this claim that's going around today that the house church is the biblical model. That the small group of 10 or 12 and no more is the biblical model. That's the lie. He birthed the church into a large group. We read throughout the book of Acts that they were meeting with one mind and one accord in the temple. And then they would go to homes and meet. He told people in the Old Testament that there were certain festivals where they were to come up to Jerusalem and celebrate together and other ones that they were to celebrate in their home with their family and their neighbors. God has always established in the Bible that there is to be the large group coming together of the church and then the small groups that break off and minister in a different way. And for somebody to say that the large meeting is wrong and that the small meeting is the will of God according to the Bible, well, they either haven't read the Bible or they're lying. He birthed it during a gathering of 120 people. The average church in America is 50 people. The Lord wants his church to come together. Christian history is full of accounts of the fruit of corporate prayer. Jonathan Edwards, you've heard of his, um, his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's historical. It's legendary. Go, go find a transcript of it somewhere and read it. But Jonathan Edwards, one Saturday night, there was a prayer group, and they were just interceding for the church. And he just was stirred in his spirit. And he stayed up all night interceding for the church. And it was the next morning after that all-night corporate prayer that he preached that message, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And the anointing was so powerful that we're told in historical accounts that men and women begin to cling to the pillars in the church because they felt that their feet were slipping into hell at that very moment. Can you imagine that? 
the fruit of corporate prayer. William Carey, in the 1800s, had a small group of people that prayed in Kettering, England. They prayed every month for eight years, and then revival came. They prayed every month for eight years. They persevered for eight years, just like Daniel persevering to the 21st day in Daniel chapter 10. For eight years. I mean, church, could we do it? I mean, could we do it? Are we in it for the long haul? Or are we just sprinting? Are we just doing it as long as it's fun? I mean, they prayed together every month for eight years, and then and not before revival came. We've got to persevere in prayer, church, in the corporate context. Charles Finney. Very fun to read historical accounts about Charles Finney. Charles Finney, in the year 1856, birthed some noontime prayer meetings in the city of Boston. 1856, the city of Boston, people started taking their lunch hour. Instead of eating lunch, they came together in all the churches and prayed. And it spread through like wildfire throughout the city. And then it spread to other large and small cities throughout the United States. And in two years, one million people were saved and put in churches. Because, yeah, praise the Lord. Give them praise. Moody, Moody at one time was, was preaching over, he's an American, but he was preaching over in England at, at Oxford and Cambridge, and um, they were just a rowdy crowd, it was a bunch of college kids, and he preached one night and they would not settle down, they were just nutso, they were loud and raucous and combative and he was so disheartened, and he got together a group of 300 godly women from Cambridge, and they met in Alexander Hall. And those 300 godly women began to intercede in prayer. And that night when Moody preached, you could have heard a pin drop. The same people, the same crowd, were 100% attentive to the Word of God. And there was incredible salvation that came that night. And Charles Moody says that that was the greatest victory of his whole life that evening. It's because 300 women got together and prayed. Charles Spurgeon led a prayer meeting every Monday night in his church that had at least 1,000 to 1,200 in attendance. And we, at this moment, are still feeling the effects of those prayer meetings. At this moment, on the other side of the earth. J. Edwin Orr is the authority on revivals throughout the church. And he says, No great spiritual awakening has begun anywhere in the world apart from united prayer. Christians persistently praying for revival. It doesn't happen without it. It just doesn't. Now, this church was birthed in prayer. Before we ever had a single meeting, there were people that were meeting together weekly for a couple of years and praying. And and then when we decided, okay, we're going to do this thing and we're going to be a church, we met together every week for five months and prayed. Before we ever had a single service, we met together for five months weekly and prayed. The church that we just planted in Los Angeles, Reality Los Angeles, before they ever had a single service, they had prayer meetings every week for nine months before they had a single service. And it's a work that's blessed of God. Our next church plant, Reality Stockton, up in Northern California, There are prayer meetings happening every Thursday up in Northern California and every Thursday down here on our coastline for that church plant and will continue for months and months and months before we ever dare have a single service. We will have months of prayer because the Bible shows us that God changes things and that God moves powerfully when we ask him to in prayer. And so church, you're going to pray right now. You're just going to turn, just two or three of you, 
just two or three of you, and what you're going to do is whatever you're stirred about in your heart, whatever you're stirred about, just communicate that. Make it short. Just communicate that to the two or three people that you're with, the one or two people. Say, here's what I'm stirred about. I want you to agree with me in prayer. And then you guys will pray out loud and just agree. You'll agree together, and in the spiritual realm, there'll be such power, and we will expect answers. So just take five minutes. Share what your burden is and then agree together in prayer. Pray, church.